Welcome to The Last Conversation. I am Brendan Mitchell, and my co-host is Chase Fairchild. We are two debate nerds who have made a habit of sitting down and having long, drawn-out conversations about politics, philosophy, and the mysteries of the universe. We made this podcast to invite others to talk with us. I hope you'll enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone, to, as you know, the last conversation taking place in a new studio under different circumstances today, which we'll probably talk more about in a later podcast, depending on how things go. But as usual, we're here to talk about something entirely divisive and horrible that no one wants to talk about. And we get turned on by this kind of stuff. So here we are again. We just finished up. If you've kept up with us, we just had a two-part episode on China, what we think may be happening between the U.S. and China. Titled The Red Curtain. The Red Curtain, yes. And unfortunately, and maybe a bit prophetically, as soon as we stop talking about The Red Curtain, the Iron Curtain seems to be falling back down. And so we kind of, both of us, I think, got in a very deep groove talking about Chinese politics and the geopolitics of China and the West. Mm -hmm. And so with, of course, the horrible situation unfolding in Ukraine and Russia putting itself forward in a very violent way, we just kind of felt it was natural for our show and the groove of thought we got in to carry on and talk about Russia. So... My dear partner, the Bren Mitchell, I think has been doing a lot of research this week. So I guess we could start off talking about what led to it, which I don't think we can talk about this unfolding crisis without talking about what's been happening in NATO over the last 10, 20 years. Which you probably know more than me. I know probably more specifics on the public opinions right now. And I've read a good bit about um, the effects of some of these sanctions on the Russian people. And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about that, too, trying to gather sources. But my first question is to you, Chase, personally, do you think that we're on the right track as far as handling the situation as the American government? Oh hell no, we're nowhere close. Because I don't I don't think I think we've actually taken a few wrong steps. It, it's been us pitifully stumbling in the wrong direction since it started. Because the thing to do against Vladimir Putin when he's angry enough to attack as he has and openly slaughter people in public and threaten the use of nuclear weapons, the thing to do is really not to reach out and swat him in the face and that's what we've been doing. And we have this debacle that's been taking place since the middle part of this week, really, with uh, Poland wanting to donate MiG planes to the Ukrainians to to give them more air power. It's looking like that deal is completely off the table <clears throat> because um, the Pentagon was the one who was orchestrating this deal. They approached Poland. They said, we'll trade you our planes and you give your planes to the Ukraine because they, they're similar technology. 
And Poland essentially had a rebuttal that said, we we'll give them to you and you give them to the Ukrainians, but we don't want blood on our hands. They said that they would allow them to put the American planes. They said they'll take them, but they'll place them in Germany at the NATO airport. At, at a U.S. airport, Ramstein Air Force Base. That's our airport. And so therefore, Military we, Air Force we'd base. have to directly give those planes to the Ukraine. the Ukraine. And nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to give them weapons, but no one wants to give them vehicles or overwhelming support, like missile systems. Well, and I have a feeling I'm obviously not a Pentagon official who has their intel reports, but the Ukrainians seem to be handing the Russians their ass on a per capita basis. Mm -hmm. Like I, I So think, far, it seems they're at least even. The numbers are a little tricky because you have— Both sides are lying through both the Both sides are lying. The Ukrainians are saying they've killed 4,000 Russian soldiers. The Russians are saying they've killed 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers. Well, in the minute the Ukrainians get air power that they can actually use and they start to drop bombs on those Russian convoys, if they manage it and they have any, any serious payloads to put in those planes or they strafe them with machine guns— that's when it gets ugly because they, if they're having the degree of success that they seem to be having, instead of it just being the Ukrainians holding their own, if they had planes, it would probably be more like Ukrainians just slaughtering Russians left and right. And then Putin would feel humiliated. And then he would probably just double down. Um, there's two major issues I'm seeing, like I was saying about the numbers and everybody lying through their teeth. The... First off, the Russians have been cut off completely from social media. In fact, Russia just moved to ban Instagram and Facebook from Russia entirely. So at first, Facebook had stated that Russians can no longer post on their media because they don't want Russian, in quotes, propaganda leaking to the West. But I think that had a backlash in which now propaganda can move nowhere. Putin can speak directly to his people and we can only speak directly to our people and we can't communicate. And this has had a major issue because if you remember, the Ukrainians started talking about and posting videos about this mysterious pilot who had a kill streak going on above, above Kiev. It's all fake. If you actually dive into that, and Snopes lays it out pretty well, Snopes.com, um, which you can't always trust Snopes, can't trust everybody. Or you can't trust someone all the time. There are some issues where any given institution will lie through their teeth. But um, Snopes laid it out pretty well and shows that actually that the footage that was going viral on TikTok was actually a computer simulation that just so happened to look hyper-realistic. And um, so this, this, this rogue Ukrainian pilot that's killed 15 Russian pilots, he doesn't exist. The Ukrainians don't have air power, period. They have nothing. And so you see, you, if you pay attention, you'll see these lies cropping up and there's propaganda on both sides. And what's dangerous is that a lot of our people are for pro-Ukrainian propaganda, which muddies the water because then we don't even know if, if we think that the Ukrainians are winning the war, then that means that we'll say, we'll send them more weapons, send them more money. Let's send the, let's make a no-fly zone. We're in the clear. They're, they're, the Russians are packing home. If, if that's not true, 
And it's not because the Russians aren't going to give up this time. They're not going to be talked down. They're going to keep killing until they think they've made their point. So you can't – the pro-Ukrainian propaganda is not good for us any more than it's good for the Ukrainians because you have to have a realistic base in this situation. And I think that's also where you run into these issues where the public opinion was that we we wanted – 80% of people polled by a a Reuters poll – claimed that they wanted these oil sanctions. And I'm not sure that people understood fully the consequences of this. Congress was forming a bill to go behind Biden and enact this oil ban. And Biden apparently went ahead and did it for them so that he didn't appear to be weak weak and usurped by the Congress. So there's there's so many moving parts right now that it's it's hard for me to really piece together what exactly is going on? And I've been eyes, you know, taped open watching the screen for two weeks now, and it's hard to digest it all. Well, I think we've. It is hard to keep track of all the moving parts, but I think undeniably, just from a thirty thousand feet above view, we're rolling totally in the wrong direction. It's a hard sell to make that NATO with at at minimum the overwhelming approval of America, if not led by America, has been agitating to absorb more and more countries moving towards Russia's border. Mm-hmm. They're very welcoming to new NATO countries. It's well, I can I don't know if I can say welcoming, but they certainly haven't said no to anybody. Ukraine was pushing towards not NATO, but EU membership a few years ago. And I think that's really what sparked all of this. I think Zelensky's election in 2016 or so, um, he was a man of, I talked to Mr. Rubin about this. I talked to him on the phone yesterday. I don't mean to steal your point, but I'll make this one short. But Zelensky was a man of the people elected by democracy, and he was pushing for EU membership and potentially NATO membership. Which creates the image, at least, that the sentiment overwhelmingly in Ukraine was to go mm-hmm. with Europe. In and anti-Russia, obviously. Anti-Russia. And then that lands a NATO-friendly country. Which can't happen. Right that, on Russia's border. That cannot happen. Mm-mm. And see, we've it's like you said, we have this backlash now by cutting off social media from the Russian people. A, they can't hear any pleas or reason coming from the West through social media directly to the people. So we've kind of chopped off our own hand. And we can't see how many of them are for us. Well, the Russian people in Russia Russia responding to this, I I think the best picture you can get is America right after 9-11. Because there were a lot of people who vocally opposed going to war in Iraq after Mm 9-11, but they didn't win. And so I think that's probably the image you could have of Russia right now. There is a large group of people, I would imagine, in Russia, those people protesting out in the streets who don't think Russia needed to invade Ukraine. The safe assumption is they're in the minority and they're not going to be the dominant faction for a very, very, very long time. Well, you can't assume that going forward, that they'll be the minority, even if they are now, because I think how hard we've sanctioned them by the fact that they declared that you can no longer move money from Russia outside of Russia, say from Russia to the United States, means that every major corporation, McDonald's, Subway, Which just shuttered all Adidas, of its restaurants in Russia until further notice. No, there is no Western business that can make money in Russia. So by default, political 
politically motivated or otherwise, they have to leave because they cannot make money. And so that means that the Russian people, I mean, they are, as much as the Russians like to act like they aren't Western, they wear all of our clothes, they consume all of our media, they eat our food, they are Westernized, they wear blue jeans. Um, so you, when you take all that away, I feel like that's that's what the public, that's what will affect the common man the most is when you destroy his economy and then take away all of the things that he used to build his world. And let's not forget they've gone into instant hyperinflation because the ruble crashed. Mm-hmm. And if countries refuse to do business with them on things that they need to import vital goods and they go into a serious depression where there are people starving, then the that's why I say the people who are against a Russian invasion of Ukraine and who would like to see the Kremlin back off are probably going to be in the minority for a long time because there's going to be a lot of Russians that go, okay, maybe we started it, but the West didn't need to beat up on us like they have. Right, which is the danger of isolating them socially is that we can't communicate. We may be making Putin's case stronger by the hour mm, rather it, than invalidating it. And as times get harsher and rougher for the Russians, they're going to more and more listen, I think, to Putin and whatever he's saying about how the reason this is happening is not because of me, it's because of them, which is the same thing that our administration is doing right now. They're trying to blame everything on Russia and it's, that's tricky too. Um, and let's not forget this pushes Russia even more into the arms of China because mm-hmm. in every way that the West has dropped them, the Chinese immediately pick them up, whether it's access to money management systems, banking systems. They're going to buy more Russian commodities to support their economy. It, as I say, we're stumbling in a very, very, very bad direction. And we sent someone who has no diplomatic skills or experience to try to handle it, which is awful. Um, are you talking about Kamala Harris? Yes. Yeah, I don't understand that move. Me and Mr. Room talked about that too. I have nothing. I'm just. I have nothing against her personality and beliefs. Nothing. Just the fact that she doesn't have experience as a government official, and she's now. Well, I feel in like the she's getting the short stick on this because you you notice there was a lot of noise from conservatives about this catastrophe unfolding at the southern border, mm-hmm. and the administration immediately said she's our borders are. It's her job. Talk to her about the border. She doesn't have experience. She doesn't. And she's now very she, young. And now she's the point person on Ukraine. And so I honestly feel like if you were a fly on the wall, she's in a bad situation because I don't think Joe Biden is competent to be in office. And that that's not a Republican or conservative mm-hmm. joke anymore. He's, he, it's he's just, just old. Well, something is seriously wrong because when you are the leader of the free world and you never show up before 11 o'clock or noon, and you're at home in bed every day by 4 o'clock, and they don't want you to talk to reporters, they don't want you to take questions, your answers glaze over everything, something is seriously amiss. And they're putting her out there and basically saying, if you're going to dump on somebody about these problems, dump on her. And that's an injustice to her. She's the first woman. I don't like her, and I didn't vote for her, but she's the first woman vice president of the country. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what your gender is or your political alignment. It's not a good idea to put you in a position where you have no competency to lean on, and she doesn't. And you're probably going to rely on the people around you who maybe may or may not can be fully trusted to guide your actions. So that leaves you in a vulnerable position where you you can be— manipulated and we're playing military chicken with a world superpower right now so the last thing we can avoid is even a minor misstep and that whole poland planes thing that was a that was i a can't screw. i can't believe that was even floated that's 
that is not the direction we need to go. Ukraine is not going to win this war. They may have an insurgency, but there is no point in risking the entire Western world over this war. Help them, yes, support them, but to actively risk our lives for Ukraine, as much compassion as I have for this small democratic country that's trying to pull itself up by its bootstraps, there's no reason to waste lives. There's no reason to pull, to even risk a hot war between NATO and, I wanted to mention this earlier, Russia is working with China, obviously, but also Pakistan and India, both of those are allies in quotes of Russia. And then, of course, all of the dictator countries in Africa and South America. So they have a small coalition. They're not alone. And that's the issue, is that we're not just dealing with Russia. I think people are losing sight of the fact that there are many countries that are not our friend, except commercially. And you risk pushing them, pushing Russia so far that Russia says, well, we'll just go deal with these guys and gather them up. And these are our friends now. And then you have another issue. You just have two large political parties on the world sphere and you have the West versus the East once again, which is not. It's worse. This is not good for us. Well, when it was just the Soviet Union, you think China at the time was kind of closed off to everybody during the original Cold War that China really didn't open until the 80s and 90s. So China wasn't really a factor. They weren't for the West, but they weren't threatened. They've always been very isolated. Very isolated, but they're not anymore. They've taken a very strong stand that they're going to be a partnership with Russia. And they've taken a very anti-American stand when it comes to the politics of the Asian bloc. And they've certainly taken a very aggressive economic stance that they want to appropriate the world's manufacturing and they want to be the world's world's number one trading partner. The 90% plan. So you have all these people, especially on the right, who've been saying since this started, oh, Putin is just trying to rebuild the old Iron Curtain. He's trying to put the Soviet Union back together. No, the Soviet Union internally, we now know, was always a disaster. Economically, people were starving all the time. There were food shortages all the time. There were internal conflicts in Eastern Europe all the time. If you get a coalition between Russia, China, India, Pakistan, and now Afghanistan and Iran – And you get that coalition going, you're talking about half of the planet willingly falling into an anti-Western stance, and they have a lot of nuclear weapons, and they have a lot of military power, and they have a lot of technological know-how. So no, this isn't Cold War 2.0, just the same conflict over again. I think this is shaping up in the long term to be something a lot uglier and a lot more protracted, because we have no inroad and no leverage. Like The Chinese aren't just going to break with the Russians. Well, here's here's something I also talk to Mr. Brim about. Right now, we're we're seeing who bleeds out first, us or Russia. And for now, it's Russia, obviously, is going to bleed out first. But they're not – I don't think people are theorizing back doors for Russia. I, I don't think – I think they think they'll push Putin up against a wall, and then he will just say, well, never mind. We'll take our troops out of the Ukraine. We're not going to win. Mm-mm. He's not going to do that. When you're that in that desperate of a situation and you're the authority, no one else is running the country but you, you're going to find – you're going to weasel your way somewhere. There's going to be a back door that opens because well, someone – let's not forget, even if we don't want – say he spoke about um, – what was it? Norway and Sweden or Denmark and Sweden. Yeah, he threatened not, them. That are not NATO states. Mm. Let's remember, we're seeing this happen in Ukraine. These other Nordic states, a lot of countries – 
on the Russian belt, that kind of crescent under the western part of Russia, that we don't necessarily want in NATO, but we don't want them to fall under Russia's control either. They're at risk too, because since they're not NATO members, we can't give them direct assistance. That would that would instigate a hot war.、Mm-hmm. So if、and、Russia says that them joining NATO is an act of war. So if we want to contain this to Ukraine and try to de-escalate it, the last thing we need is to be making noise about wanting a more aggressive. And the Europeans aren't helping things because there's been news popping up over the last week and a half that they're preparing to radically increase their defense spending.、Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the message you're sending? We're gearing up for a war. So I agree with you. Vladimir Putin's not going to stop what he's doing in Ukraine. If you had very careful diplomacy. You might be able to contain it to Ukraine if they keep pushing. And what they might do is he might get to the border of Ukraine and Poland and go.、Hmm, I've come this far, and the West has only gotten more and more vicious in its attacks up till this point. I may as well just keep rolling and go into Poland. They're stoking a war with me, anyways. And the Poles may have put themselves in the crosshairs with this whole MiG thing. So they may have given him a valid reason to cross over that border. And attack them, and at that point, all of NATO is responsible to come to Poland's defense. Um, I, I wanted I brought some statistics from that Reuters poll because I think these are these are very telling for what the common person is thinking, and therefore what the government is implicit on acting upon, most likely. So I have one, two, three, four. I have seven points here. And these are kind of profound, and I'm not sure people know exactly what they're demanding. But 74% are in favor of a no-fly zone over the Ukraine. That's down from 80%, which it was when they first brought the topic up. 80% of people said no-fly zone, put it in. I think people are starting to realize a no-fly zone is an act of war, and you can't impose that without saying that if Russia flies a plane over the Ukraine, we're going to shoot it down. Full stop. Eighty percent wanted to stop buying Russian oil, and that's what they did. Eighty-one percent、um, think we should go even further with sanctions, but the problem is, is that now since we've banned the oil and natural gas, there's no more sanctions to be had; they're completely severed. Seventy-seven percent were for seizing the oligarchs' property and seizing the property of Vladimir Putin, which we've done. Sixty-two percent.、Um, Said that it was worthwhile for the gas prices to go up, and I'm putting in parentheses and italics and quotation marks temporarily,、um, in order to defend the Ukraine. Seventy-two percent said that we should provide them weapons, and seventy-four percent said that we should take in refugees. Which both of those seem reasonable. That's the first things we did, but I'm not sure. I just feel like everybody is just kind of acting on gut feeling, but I I understand it because we have to appear strong. If we appear weak in this moment, the spotlight's on us, and so I understand why they're acting so strong. But I'm not sure they're thinking through the consequences. I think we're kind of making it up as we go along here. Well, I really think the Biden administration this will grate at a lot of people's nerves. I think the Biden administration made a big mistake by coming out, especially in the State of the Union address, and coming on with a Vladimir Putin is an evil monster and he's destroying、mm-hmm. people, and we have to attack in every way possible. We have to stand with the Ukrainians. That's why these polls are the way they are. I honestly, honestly, 
I think a better result would have come out for all involved if his response had been a, a really a kind of cold, nonchalant, Ukraine's not our problem. And by the way, we were never going to accept them into NATO and we don't plan to. And why are you just senselessly killing people? We weren't going. In other words, make it look as if Putin was the one overreacting. Instead of even though Ukraine is important. It is very important. Like it is were, very important. But, but if you act like if you play the game like you're saying to where they strike and you strike 10 times harder, it it gives Putin more credibility because he's been saying we're validating his narrative because his story has he's kind of been the Donald Trump of Russia in a certain sense because he came or the Xi of China because he comes along and his story for all these decades, he's kind of like crazy Uncle Joe. Because for all these decades that he's been president of Russia, I think probably if you could talk to the Russian people, they would say, you know, he's been good for the economy. And we look at him as a dynamic leader and he survived communism and he came out of that. But we just wish he would lay off with the West. They're not out to get us. Like things mm -hmm. are getting better. They're not out to get us. We wish he would just stop with that rhetoric about the West. Okay. And he invades Ukraine. And at first there was a big groundswell apparently of people protesting in Moscow about – this invasion that it wasn't what the Russian people wanted. It wasn't the direction Russia should have taken. And then the next thing that happens is the West strikes back, but we don't just say that was uncalled for. And we don't just give them a little money or a little humanitarian aid. We literally go death con one and we eliminate every economic bit of blood and oxygen that they have in their economy. And we're giving guns to people who are killing I mean, those young Russian soldiers who were crying, saying they didn't know they were going to war, they have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. So, yes, Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was horrible, but it required the nimblest diplomacy skills and military strategy skills to extract everyone from that and calm the situation down. And our response was to just dump gasoline on the flames mm -hmm. and doing it more and more every day. And there doesn't seem to be anyone in Washington or in the NATO states. I mean, they're over there talking about ramping up defense spending. They got hardline about that a little late in the game. And I've never – I mean – and the world knows this is a touchy subject and it's a touchy comparison to make. But I was a kid during the September 11th attacks. And so I kind of grew up, and I guess you did too. With the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan is just a reality for much of when we were little kids. Mm -hmm. It was out there and we were watching it happen. The world outside of America and the West has had a long time to watch the Western world. And they figured out that we have a key tactical weaknesses and that's that we get exhausted on war. And so I almost think that the gambit that Putin's playing right now, and he, I bring it up because it has every chance of working, is gas prices are shooting up. There's all this incessant tension. Every news show, everything is coverage of the war in Ukraine. Rhetoric heating up on both sides. Putin threatening more military action against other wannabe NATO states or nuclear action with tactical nukes. I think he knows that if he just keeps his, his military action and his kind of background bluffs of nuclear war and further military action in, in NATO border states, mm -hmm. he knows eventually the West will just give in under exhaustion and he'll just keep Ukraine. And honestly, at this point, as bad as this has been bungled, that may be the best outcome for Ukraine to be the one thing that we lose. And then we go, if we don't screw with you anymore, will you not invade anyone else? 
and for him to go, well, I've proven my point, obviously, and you know not to mess with me, so maybe I won't bother the Nordic countries and maybe I'll take a less antagonistic approach, but you have to start buying our oil again in Europe and America would go, well, we're kind of fed up with the high gas prices. So, and we're about to get voted out of office because of high gas. So yeah, maybe we will. And also as far as the gas prices, this is not tenable because Germany were 40% of their fuel came from Germ uh, from Russia. It's just not a tenable solution. Well, they still haven't disengaged entirely. I mean, as far as I understand, they shuttered Nord 2, which was supposed to be only natural gas. But as far as I know, they're still sucking millions of barrels of oil a day out of Nord 1. Mm -hmm. And that's because they can't – Europe would immediately go into total economic paralysis. There would be an immediate Great Depression in Europe if they shut off all that oil because – Commerce would shut down. No one would be able to travel and work. Also, you're talking about countries in which it gets very cold, and it's still winter. Well, it's Ukrainians are freezing winter. to death now because where the fighting has cut off electric or where the Russians have intentionally shut down electric power supplies, I, I, I would imagine trying to force a surrender. There are people freezing and without clean water right now. So, it, I found out today that the Ukraine actually gets the vast majority of their power from nuclear, like something like 60 or 70 percent of their power is nuclear. And that's why the Russians are targeting their nuclear power plants so heavily, not to destroy them, but to control them and then shut down sections of the Ukraine that the Ukrainians are fighting from. They've already got Europe's largest, which is in Ukraine, the, mm -hmm. the nuclear reactor that was providing most of Ukraine's electricity. They've already got that. And there's also a tactical advantage to that because they were always running the gamble that the West would send heavy artillery or even provide air cover. And you can't drop artillery shells or aerial ordnance on a nuclear facility. Mm -hmm. So if you cluster your ground forces and vehicles in and around nuclear facilities, you're at zero risk of having – you can shoot artillery and airstrikes at the enemy but they can't shell you for fear of causing a nuclear meltdown. So, but yeah, they've obviously been trying to take control of Ukraine's electric power grid. <clears throat> and the elephant in the room that I haven't heard anyone talk about is that's about a quarter of the world's grain, corn supply and wheat supply in Ukraine. Those fields are about to go into planting season when the seeds need to be planted. Ukraine a lot of their labor has left and evacuated the surrounding countries to get away from the fighting. Their men are standing in the streets of their shelled cities with Kalashnikovs waiting for the Russians to approach to begin urban fighting. If those fields don't get planted, we're going to be in a, in a global food crisis because the Europeans are going to start buying grain and shit from us mm -hmm. to prop up what they're not getting from Ukraine. And the Chinese also buy grain from the Ukraine. So there's going to be this global rush to buy up American and Canadian grain before people start starving. So we're going to, if you think the high gas prices alone are, are causing like a creeping heart attack in the U.S. economy and in the Western economies, that food supply problem is going to get a lot worse. I mean, we. I'm not an economist, so anyone who says I don't know what I'm talking about, granted, from a professional perspective, but. America is on very, 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 very slippery economic ground now. Like, mm -hmm. it's not talked about, but we've been sliding slowly into a recession for about two years now. 
and I'm not sure these high gas prices alone aren't going to trigger it, but if we go into a food crunch, see, the last time we got into this trouble was after the 07-08 crisis, and the European Central Bank started buying a lot of American bonds at low interest rates because they went to negative interest rates. So our 1% or half a percent bonds look pretty sweet to them in American dollars. They're not buying bonds anymore. And they're in, especially if this spills over into a hot war in mainland Europe, they're not coming to our rescue. So if we get high gas prices and then you compound that with a rising cost of food, you're looking at Great Depression 2.0. And the problem is there's not going to be a war that comes along to bail us out of that. There's a war that's going to mean there's no help coming from anywhere else and we're just on our own. And I don't see that the Federal Reserve has any magic silver bullets left to shoot at a bubble bursting to keep it inflating. The only thing they could do is spend more money, and that's not going to solve anything at all. Mm -mm. What do you think about um, about Zelensky? Because if you have you been paying attention to the specifically to what he's been saying, because he's been saying some pretty radical stuff, and people, I, I have some issues like i understand him but i have some issues with this idea of turning him into a hero and potentially a martyr when they finally catch him if they ever do well let's go back further when the panama papers came out and it was exposed that a lot of these global leaders a lot of those global leaders who would tell you they're democratic socialist and they're against capitalism and we need to raise everybody's taxes it came out that there is a vast network of tax shelters around the world that a lot of political leaders use to hide and grow their money without paying taxes on it. Zelensky's name was one of the ones attached to those documents. I honestly smell a rat with him because if you recall, it was this talk of Joe and Hunter Biden and dirty dealings in Europe and getting paid under the table. A lot of that was Ukraine. That prosecutor that was looking into his son who was on the board or one of the executives of Burisma, that was Zelensky. The, I think I've got my timetables correct that Zelensky would have been the president that he had that phone call that the audios come out of where Biden was there and he threatened to, to hold back U.S. financial aid to the Ukrainian government. Well, that if, was Zelensky was elected in 2019, I believe. Maybe a little bit before. So, I mean, that that could be right. That's about the time the Biden stuff was coming out. I'm not sure. I, I just, the big problem in discussing this is people who are on the outside of it is no one has the full, complete, true story. I feel like the U.S. government is not saying a lot, and Zelensky and Putin are certainly not saying a lot. Well, I, I specifically asked this because I found a quote of his that he announced. And it was pretty, understandably, but pretty radical. So he said. <laughs> Technical problems, people. He said, we will not forgive. We will not forget. We will punish everyone who committed atrocities in this war. We will find every scum who was shelling our cities, our people, who was shooting the missiles, who was giving orders. You will not have a quiet place on this earth except for a grave. When I saw that, I was like, that's 
That sounds eerily similar to exactly what Nikita Khrushchev said at the UN General Assembly when he beat the podium with his shoe and said, we are going to bury you all. Mm. I mean, that's that's very slash and burn kind of foreign policy attitude to take. And he's in no position, God help him, to be threatening Russia because right now Russia is taking his ass over and hunting him with mercenaries. So, Well, Zelensky was the main proponent of the no-fly zone. I mean, he's the one who's been asking for all of this. And essentially, he just, he's been bringing a laundry list to NATO. And over and over again, they've just said yes, yes, yes. But when it came to the no-fly zone, that's when they finally said no. He was elected in 2019. Um. And Petro Poroshenko was the president before him. Mm-hmm. Zelensky is an interesting character because he did. You, do you know that he was an actor and, and a comedian, and he played in a TV show? And because of the plot of the TV show, that's what got him elected. Mm-mm. He played a character in a TV show that was a school teacher who became president of Ukraine. And after the TV show was finished, everybody adored him so much that they started saying they were going to write in for him in the ballots and that they wanted him to be president. And so he decided, well, I'll just run for president. And he won by a landslide. But see, the Ukraine is so um, corrupt that the Ukrainians, I think, were looking for a kind of normal person that they could adore that would be their hero. And Forgetting that politics changes people. Yeah, well, I'm not so sure if it's that he's evil or if it's just that he doesn't – he's he's an actor. And so now when you look at everything he's said, everything he's done, he's no military commander. Uh, people are making this mistake of seeing that because he's in olive green jackets and flak jackets and wearing an army hat and that he has a machine gun in his hand that he's a soldier. He's a, He's an actor and – what better time for someone to step up and play the part of the every man that took control of a fledgling democracy and that's going to rally the West? I mean, that's what—that's the role that he's playing. That's what, how the media is painting him. So that's what I'm getting back to this propaganda. I'm saying we're playing with dangerous matches and fire here where I don't think reality is what we are seeing. We're not seeing reality at all. and. And people are really falling. I hate to for say this about narratives. a living human being, but make no mistake, it's only a matter. His days are numbered. Oh, he's made himself public enemy number one. The Russians will find him and they will kill him mm-hmm. because these le- people keep kind of half making fun of these logistical problems the Russians are apparently having. The Russians have a human wave advantage. There's probably more people in the Russian military than there are in Ukraine. Probably. If you look at I'm very seriously exaggerating, but I mean. Maybe not soldiers, but as far as personnel, maybe. And they have a lot more payload. Mm -hmm. And they're apparently not the least bit concerned about even civilian casualties. So his days are numbered. They know where he is. And they're closing in on Kiev every day. And. I mean, I don't know. It's been floated by several people that Putin may just be driving aggressively to decapitate the Ukrainian government and put a puppet in place. Yeah, well, see, here's another quote that I I grabbed from Zelensky. When he was elected, he said that his goals as president were, and I quote, to build a strong, powerful, and free Ukraine, which is not the younger sister of Russia, but which which is not a corrupt partner of Europe, but which is an independent Ukraine. 
And I think that's pretty bold coming from a small country that sits next to Russia. And I just don't think they expected this to happen. And that's, they were acting very brash and, and brave, which is admirable and good, but that Russia decided not this time, which is scary and frightening. Well, I'm sure that's a factor to it too, is that Putin thought I'm not going to be talked down to by these insects. The former in Soviet state. Exactly. They need to be slapped down. Which is why explains why he says all this nonsense about Ukraine being run by Nazis and that it all of this being, you know, essentially with the propaganda going into Russia right now, from what I've read, is essentially that they are, in quotes, demilitarizing the Ukraine and that they are making great progress and that soon Ukraine will be reunited with Russia. That's the message that the Russians are getting. They're not getting this message of, of war crimes and sanctions, and that's not the angle that they're being painted. Where these symbolic actions carry so much weight, you know, because in America, Trump did it, the left does it. If you can create a massive social sentiment against your enemy and in your, and in your general direction, you can get a lot done without there being any real fundamental debate. You know, Obama is loved. He is loved. His economic policy and foreign policy was a disaster. He is so loved simply because people were attracted to him. And the alternatives, John McCain and then Mitt Romney, weren't attractive. It doesn't matter that he has no clue, had no clue what he was doing. He'll still go down in history as one of the most beloved presidents of all time. Even Republicans have a hard time being particularly nasty about him. But Putin doesn't operate that way. He's not injured emotionally or mentally in any way by criticism. Telling him he's mean isn't going to get anywhere. Telling him he's not polished and he's not being diplomatic isn't going to get anywhere. He wants what he wants, and he'll obviously, if anyone doubted it, it's obvious at this point, he'll take what he wants at the point of a machine gun or the muzzle of a missile launcher easily and he's not worried about what the western world thinks and see we're getting a domino effect here because the conflict in russia and the rising gas prices has got us begging russia and china align dictators for oil so mm -hmm. what do you think about china's reaction to all of this they seem to have distanced themselves Partially. At first, they were neutral, and then they said something kind of strange about Taiwan. But then when the sanctions hit, they kind of hushed, and they stopped the Taiwan talk, and then they just kind of sat back and watched and lightly, very lightly condemned Russia. Um, I think they're waiting to see, like everybody else, where the chips fall. Mm -hmm. Because if Russia takes Ukraine... And if they can kind of stuff the West kind of back down into its box, calm down. We took Ukraine. You tried to stop us. You didn't win. We don't want to have to prove our point again by taking another country. Do You don't want us to do that. Do you know? No, no, no. Please, for the love of God, don't, don't, don't invade anyone else. We don't want to fight. We don't want a war. Okay, then. It's easy. Shut up about Ukraine. Take the sanctions off. Give me back the swift banking system, and it can all go back to normal. Just don't screw with me anymore. And if that happens, then the Chinese would be idiots not to go, well, we've wanted Taiwan forever. We already took Hong Kong. 
we'll just take Taiwan. It'll go over easier. The American people aren't as concerned about Taiwan as they were about Ukraine. And in the end, in spite of all their bluster, they let Ukraine fall. So we may as well just very gently reach out and take Taiwan. Well, I don't, I'm not so sure because Taiwan produces 90% of our electronic microchips. And so any, any disruption in that production line would cause us to screech to a halt. But um, I think what's more likely to come out of this is that China is seeing a, a potentially very, very weak Russia. Not even potentially. They are right now. They're the weakest they've ever been. And I think China is looking at them as an investment because China is pushing Chinese companies are re- actively, as we speak, replacing the infrastructure that Western companies had. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, all of those are gone. The Chinese banks are moving in and saying, here, use our app, use our credit, use our debit and our, our cards, use our online infrastructure. Now you can keep using your phone to buy, buy your coffee and your, you know, you can go to the bank and withdraw money because it's going to cycle through the Chinese system. And so... After this is all over, I'm, I think, see, I keep going back to this idea that Putin is actually incompetent. I'm not sure he knows what he's doing. And not that he's not a great leader and that he's forceful and authoritative. I mean, he's a good king, but. Um, I good in the sense that he's good at being brutal. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's necessarily thinking any further than our government is right now. And I think China is essentially going to buy up Russia. Mm-hmm. For very, very, very cheap and invest all of their infrastructure into Russia. And then now Russia and China are are in. And once that happens, Putin is sanction proof. Mm-hmm. Like he played with the West with the swift banking system and all this for a long time. And he gets an assist from the Russian people, whether they necessarily like him or not, because you move and you transition into getting most of the goods from China. The Russian people are going to say, well, every time the Russian government has a spat with the West, they want to pull the plug. And then that makes us suffer even more, even if we're not the ones hurting them, if, even if it's the Kremlin. So we'll just stick with the Chinese because we don't have spats with them. OK, so once that happens, Russia becomes sanction proof. We'll never have that. We're out of bullets at that point. Because you can't win in a war of attrition with China. Mm-mm. They win. They could defeat the entire West. Because we're so dependent on them. I realized that as soon as I saw what the sanctions did to Russia, I imagined the same sanctions to China, and China would win. They would just wait. Nothing would we, happen. We, there'd never be a conflict, ever, because our leaders know the minute we get, we're shut off from cheap Chinese goods, inflation would kick in so hard and fast here. It'd have the opposite effect. We would go through what Russia is going through right now. Exactly. And what are the Chinese going to do? They have everything they need except grain and food, and they can buy that from Russia. And India. And India. So I don't think the next 30 years of world history are going to be pretty. Well, I had been theorizing that this is what was going to happen, that there was going to be not a figurative, but a genuine, literal moving of power from the west back to the east and i think we're starting to see that i think now everything's level as far as the balance and that it this these next few years will determine which way the balance goes does the east become more powerful and the the rulers of the world or does the west keep their their footing 
it's all economic at this point. It's not even about military. It's it's this is a war of economies with just soldiers playing small battles here and there. It seems to all be about money. It that's, is. That's the real power now. It's not in the armies. Well, and the West is so economically choked off because we've made so many horrible policy decisions that have just festered for decades that there's a very deep, rotten wound in the West all over, and it the epicenter of it is in the United States. And we're too weak to fight an economic war. We have no competitive advantage on anything. We're not independent in producing anything except energy, and these Russia sanctions and rising gas prices are proving we're not even independent on that. So, I mean, there's no fighting the Chinese. Russia will just run into the arms of China, and at that point, they're both invincible. We really, really, really didn't need for there to be a deeper schism between the West and Russia. And I, I see now, I didn't think of it until last night, I saw a phone interview with Donald Trump on Fox News. He calls into Sean Hannity's show mm. and gets interviewed. And I'm listening to him talk, and he's making noise, you know. Nobody was tougher on Putin than I was, so we need to be very tough. But we don't have an administration that's going to be tough. I told him, you have to be tough. He's not being tough. But it occurred to me while he was talking, he was slick in how he dealt with NATO. Because you notice... He said, NATO has to pay its own bills. And people said, you're being so, that is so unprofessional and unbefitting the leader of the free world. He shouldn't, he needs to lay off on that. And then he said that he was seriously thinking that maybe the NATO alliance was a dated thing and it didn't need to be anymore. And everyone said, oh my God, that's horrible. That's tantamount to, I mean, they'd already been calling him a Nazi. But this is tantamount to the Third Reich almost that you would suggest that we pull out of the NATO alliance. Well, stop and think. The Europeans seem to have been wanting to stab at Russia for years. It may have been that the unspoken addendum to all of Trump's sort of lukewarm on NATO and they need to fund their own defense more was really him saying, you people are about to start a war with Russia and it's uncalled for and we're not going to fight it. So you either straighten up or else you're going to have to pay for your damn war yourself, and we're going to leave NATO, and you're going to be stuck out here on the end of this continent with the ocean on your left and Putin advancing to the right, and we're not going to help you. He may have been trying in his head to put the Europeans in a vice to make them calm down about you know, expanding NATO or taking an aggressive stance toward Russia. I'm going to have to pause you there because I have to pee very badly. But think, stew on your idea.